0: This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. No matter where you are going on your next travels, Get Your Guide offers great ways to connect with your destination and make memories with locally vetted, expertly curated experiences. Things just as examples. You could go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. You could take a tour of Pike Place Market in Seattle with a chef. There's a London Royal Parks and Palaces tour. All kinds of options wherever you are going. So discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Um, Tax season is approaching bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not yada yada. Not putting up with yada yada means not falling for all those extra headaches. If you don't take yada yada in life, don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not yada yada. Stop by one of
1: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Happy Saturday! Since Jules Verreau came up in our episode on the platypus, we thought we would bring our Verreau Brothers episode back into people's feeds. The Vero brothers and their taxidermy tableaus have also come up on Unearthed, including the tableau now known as Lion Attacking a Dromedary. When we recorded this, it was believed that this tableau did not include any real human remains, but as we discussed in Unearthed in 2017, surprise, it actually does. This tableau was also covered up for a time in 2020, and it came back on full display in July of 2021.
0: One of the Varo brothers' most horrifying actions, which we talk about in this episode, was stealing the body of a man who was believed to be from Botswana and then using that body to create a taxidermy display. After this episode came out, we got a message from listener Cena, who grew up in Botswana, and let us know that a person from Botswana is called a Botswana. Cena also noted the pronunciation of the city Haborone, And there continues to be debate about where this person was really from. There are articles from as recently as 2019 suggesting that he may really have been from close to Cape Town, South Africa, rather than from Botswana. So the mysteries continue. This episode
1: originally came out on November 24th, 2014. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry,
0: And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So
1: sometimes we will pick a topic because it seems interesting and light. Like we've had a lot of heavy stuff. So you and I have both been pretty open that we're looking at just some less intense, troublesome fare. Less horrifying. Yeah. Uh, And then while you're doing the research on that thing that seemed like it would just be cool and fascinating, you discover a whole other story that you didn't know was there. This is one of those cases. <laughs> uh, so for context, it'll sound like I'm going off on a crazy tangent, but it's germane. One of my favorite animals of all time, like in the world, is the Varose sifaka. And this is uh, an animal you've probably seen footage of. They're members of the lemur family uh, Idridae, and they're native to Madagascar. So even if you don't recognize your name, you have probably seen footage of them Um They sometimes, versions of them show up on children's shows and in cartoons because they're so incredibly cute. They're mostly white and they have kind of rust brown bellies and these dark chocolate colored faces and these big eyes and they're so cute. There are a million videos of them on YouTube hopping around because they sometimes will travel on the ground upright in kind of a crazy jumping motion and people like to set it to music. It's adorable. Uh, We'll try to include a link to at least one of those in the show notes. So I thought, hey, you know what would be really cool? We should talk about... Jules Verreau, who is the naturalist for whom these charming animals were named. And then the research got a little bit dark, but also kind of interesting and exciting, even though some of the subject matter is uh, troubling.
0: And it's not that the dark parts are also the exciting parts.
1: No. They're largely
0: two different parts. Uh,
1: there's a lot of different elements to the story, and it really involves an entire family and sort of their family business. Uh, it's involves botany and taxidermy and grave robbing and the Paris Exposition and kind of a lot of different things that we've talked about on the show before in, in different episodes. But this really kind of stacks a number of them together, and it's kind of fascinating in that regard. So that is the scoop about Jules Verreau and sort of how we got to some. You'll see as about halfway through, we get to kind of the really thing that might make your... If you feel a little unease about some of the things that they did in the name of exploration and uh, science, but also kind of sensationalist tourism kind of (laughs) uh, attractions, so... Normally, we would start an episode that revolves around the actions of people like this by talking about the early lives of those people. But this is kind of tricky in this case because uh, even though there was some fame and notoriety to the family, the accounts of, like, what their childhood, what the the family, the patriarch, and then his children who really become the the prime point of the story, like, what their home life and their childhoods were like, it's pretty sparse. And there's a lot of really
0: contradictory stories. So it's sort of... This happens a lot with much older history, where it's sort of like, and suddenly there was a mathematician. Yeah,
1: this seems recent enough that I'm like, there should be more stuff. But I think part of it is that because there is a lot of exploring that happened, and at one point, there was a ship that sank with some things. Like, I'm wondering if documents got lost or journals
0: got lost along the way. Yeah. So that's the scoop. So in 1803, taxidermist Jacques-Philippe Voreau opened Maison Voreau, which was a taxidermy house. So Maison Voreau provided taxidermy specimens to museums and collectors. And this was the foremost supplier of natural exhibit pieces. And work from the Voreau family business is still on display in museums throughout the world. Actually, now I'm wondering if there were any at the... I went to a very odd museum a couple of weekends ago that was full of really old taxidermy specimens. And now I wish I had made note of who had prepared them all. It's very possible. There are
1: like a lot of big name museums that still have their pieces. And one of them we're going to talk about at length a little bit later. But I suspect because we're talking about huge volume that these guys were doing in terms of the specimens they prepared. And uh, I'm sure some of that has trickled out into much smaller uh, and sort of less flagship museums that are a little bit more specialized. But So Jacques-Philippe and his wife Josephine had three sons. So there was Jules Pierre, who was born in 1807, Jean-Baptiste Edouard, who went by Edouard throughout his life in uh, 1810, and their youngest son was Joseph Alexei, and he went by Alexi
0: When their oldest son Jules was 11 or maybe 12, because the accounts vary a little bit, He traveled with his uncle, naturalist Pierre de la Lande, to South Africa. Jules was in South Africa until he was 13, and when the two of them came back, they brought more than 130,000 specimens home with them. This number was mostly made up of plant specimens, but there were also almost 300 mammals, more than 2,000 birds, and several hundred fish and reptiles. And then also in their collection were a number of human skulls and full skeletons which had been exhumed from their burial spots in Cape Town.
1: And one of the larger specimens that they brought back uh, was the skeleton of a hippopotamus, which I don't think had ever been uh, collected before. And that went on display at the Paris Museum of Natural History.
0: Once he was back in Paris, Jules studied anatomy and taxidermy, and he had this natural proclivity for preserving biological samples. Yeah, he
1: very, uh, almost effortlessly sort of fell in line with the family business. Like He was just really naturally extremely good at, at mounting specimens. And in 1825, uh, so Jules had been studying for a while. His uncle Pierre died. That was the uncle that he had traveled to Cape Town originally with. And so Jules actually returned to Cape Town after Pierre's death. And eventually, while he was working there, he helped to establish and become curator of the South African Museum. And that was a post that he officially began in 1829, although the wheels were turning on getting it set up before that. Uh, And he also, the whole time he was there, continued to collect samples of both flora and fauna.
0: During this second collection phase, it just became glaringly obvious that he was going to need help. So he sent for his brother, Edward, the second son of Maison Verreux. Made this journey to Cape Town in 1830.
1: Yeah, so that was just the year after uh, Jules became. Uh, Jules assumed his post at the South African Museum. And during this time, there's also some interesting, it's almost like a side note in a lot of the the accounts you read. Uh, he became interested in seeking out sort of mythological creatures to see if they had any basis in reality. So he was actually searching for a unicorn during this time. And also uh, an elephant bird, which was apparently extinct
0: It was also during this time that the Varro brothers came into possession of an item that would just be extremely controversial, and I would say justifiably so, long after the two of them were gone. But before we get into this sort of
1: grim bit of taxidermy, do you want to pause and have a word from a sponsor so we don't interrupt sort of the dark weirdness with... Let's do. (laughs) Okay.
2: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit
2: QuickBooks. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
4: places
1: okay so before the break edward had traveled to south africa to assist his older brother jules in the collection of specimens both for the museum where jules was a curator and for return to paris to be sold to collectors as part of the ongoing uh, family high-end taxidermy business
0: And while the search for a unicorn or some other mythical animal didn't pan out, they did get their hands on a human specimen.
1: And this particular piece actually involved a grave robbing. Uh, uh, What is believed possibly, this isn't 100% confirmed and we'll talk about this later, to be a native Botswana man, was taken from his resting place, preserved and mounted. And in a letter to Paris Museum Director Georges Cuvier, Jules wrote, quote, an object which is not the least interesting in our collection is a stuffed Bushwana." so it's a little bit of a wiggly way to say Botswana, uh, which is very well preserved and which was about to cause my death, because in order to get it, I was obliged to disinter it at night in places guarded by his fellows.
0: Really, French guy?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's uh, There's one account, and we'll talk about, like I said, this particular specimen more, because his history reaches quite far through history. Um, the, there was one particular... Piece of research I was doing, they were like, you can almost kind of like excuse it a little as just contextualized in the time, but even so, I think what's telling is that the museum did
0: not want it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) They were like, no, thank you. Uh, Yeah, they they said we would not like to purchase this piece from you.
1: Yeah, so it went on display at Maison Verreau because they had it. It was already shipped. (laughs)
0: It's upsetting. It is upsetting. Well, and I think the reason that like, there are a lot of things that we talk about that uh, happened in the past would definitely be inexcusable today. And, like, there's some degree of, at the time, right? attitudes are very different. Uh, it's been really long established that, like, burying of the dead... Is a, a pretty sacrosanct thing yes. across cultures. And that's where I kind of go, guys, you should have known better.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, especially when he talks about how he had to like sneakily do it. Wildly like he's guarded. Yeah. Surely there was a question mark in your head. Like, is this the right thing to do? And I I don't we don't know, unfortunately, if he was just so driven by this spirit of collection and, you know, cataloging the world of all of its various types of creatures, or if he was just kind of weaselly and just wanted to sell it off for money. Like, it's not really clear, but it certainly seems like there had to have, you would hope there was a moment of moral debate in his head.
0: At least that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the following piece appeared in the Parisian periodical La Constitutionnelle, and this is a translation. It runs a little long, but we wanted to include all of it because it's a really good indicator of the cultural attitude at the time toward Native Africans.
1: Yeah, and this appeared in November of 1831. So bear with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. Two young people, Monsieur the Vareau brothers, have recently arrived from a voyage to the ends of Africa to the land of the Cape of Good Hope. One of these interesting naturalists is barely 18 years old, but he has already spent 20 months in the wild country north of the land of the Hottentots between the latitudes of Natal and the top of St. Helena Bay. How can one possibly imagine what deprivations he had to endure? Our young compatriots had to face the dangers of living in the midst of natives in this zone of Africa who are ferocious as well as black, as well as the fawn-colored wild animals among which they live, about which we do not need to tell. We want to speak only about the triumphs of their collecting and do not know which to admire more, their intrepidity or their perseverance. Humans, quadrupeds, birds, fish, plants, minerals, shells— All of these they have studied. Their hunting has given them tigers, lions, hyenas, an admirable lubel, a crimson antelope of rare elegance, a host of other small members of the same family, two giraffes, monkeys, long pitchforks, very curious rats, ostriches, birds of prey, which have never been described before, a great quantity of other birds of all sizes, colors, and species. They also have a collection of birds' nests, which could be the object of a charming descriptive essay, Roots like onions and other plants of remarkable shape and extraordinary size, snakes, a cachalot, and a crocodile of a type previously unknown. But their greatest curiosity is an individual of the nation of the bejuanas This man is preserved by the means by which naturalists prepare their specimens and reconstitute their form and, so to speak, their inert life. He is of small stature, black of skin, his head covered by short, woolly and curly hair, armed with arrows and a lance, clothes in antelope skin, with a bag made of bush pig full of small glass beads, seeds, and of small bones. Another thing that we are rather embarrassed to find a suitable to- term to characterize is the very special accessory of modest clothing worn by the Betsuanas, which we find most striking. Monsieur Vareau have deposited their scientific riches at the stores of Monsieur de Serre, Rue saint fiacre number 3, they are generously put on display for the public without charge. It would be well if the Jardin des Plantes, which is the botanical gardens, uh, took this opportunity to extend its collections already so beautiful to become even more desirable and to use the skills which they did not already possess of Monsieur Verro with the time, the talent, and the energy necessary to go out Africa to catch nature in the act. It's so crazy of this weird grossness.
0: It really, well, you say weird grossness. Like this part turns my stomach where they're talking about this part that it's a man. Isn't this
1: great that they did this, you guys? Right. It's such a bizarre, uh, like, way to sell it to my mind. You know, like my sensibilities are very, like, troubled that they're like, what we really want to talk about is how amazing these two guys are. Yeah. And then they, they talk about the specimen of the Botswanan with such delight and right. like, oh, it's the neatest thing. And I'm like, that's a person.
0: So, <laughs> so, listeners, sometimes this is what happens when we just want to talk about adorable lemurs. Yeah, we, <laughs> we find horrifying things instead. Yeah. yeah. So, the middle brother, Edward, brought this human display. And an assortment of other samples to Paris in 1831. And a lot of them were delivered into the hands of museums that were really eager to expand their collections. So we're going to come back to this particular piece of taxidermy in a bit. Because the story of this mounted human specimen reaches all the way up to very recent history.
1: But as for the Varro brothers themselves, uh, when Edward returned to South Africa the following year, so that would be 1832, he also brought their third brother, Alexi with him.
0: It's believed that Alexi never left Africa after his arrival and lived out the rest of his life there, assisting with Jules's collection efforts. Jules and Edward seem to have done some traveling, although there's no definitive record on exactly where they went, and the list includes usually places like the Philippines and China. It does appear that at one point in the late 1830s, a shipment of their specimens was lost on its way to Paris when the whole ship that was carrying the collection sank.
1: Yeah, that's usually, if you look at different accounts, that's usually consistent. Uh, And then getting into the 1840s, it's consistent. But during that period of the 1830s, uh, particularly the early half, there will be accounts of them being in two different places at the same time in different, like, you know, journals and accounts that other people have given. They'll say, oh, they were in China then, and it's... Some other one says... It's like it doesn't even acknowledge that that one exists. They may not have known that, but it's like, oh, and then they were here in this part of the world, and they could not have been in both of those places. So it is a little bit hard to actually track their movements. In
0: 1842, Jules Verreau made his way to Australia, and he wanted to expand his preserved sample of offerings to include more specimens from outside of Africa. He explored New South Wales and Tasmania, and he gathered all kinds of botanicals, insects, birds, and mammals. And again, he gained some the possession of some human remains.
1: Yeah, uh, they, you know, have... It comes up periodically that they had multiple samples of human remains. It It's usually believed by most people, I think, that they really only uh, did the one mounting of a human and that the rest were sort of like bones that have been... Discovered along the way, they may have, we talked about them disinterring some bodies in South Africa, uh, some of the skeletons, but just for context, there was just the one taxidermied human that we know of.
0: It's one too many. It is.
1: But I just want to make that clear that this wasn't like a, they weren't making a career of taxidermying people. Uh, So after five years of exploring Australia, Jules returned to Paris, and for several years, he worked on organizing and naming the collection, uh, both the new things that he had brought as well as, you know, sort of placing them in context with other specimens that he had collected through the years. He was eventually employed as an assistant naturalist at the Paris Museum of Natural History, and that started in 1862. So it had been more than a decade that he had been kind of working on classifications and, and descriptive catalogs of all of his various pieces that he had gathered throughout the world.
0: Jules had continued to work on his taxidermy throughout his whole life and his travels, but it's in the late 1860s that he made one of his most famous mounted tableaux, and it was entitled Arab Courier Attacked by Lions. In this display, a mannequin outfitted in the black cape that was typical of the Arab and Tuareg dress of North Africa is featured in the fictional moment that he's pulled off of the camel he's riding by two Barbary lions.
1: An Arab courier won the gold medal for excellence at the Paris Exposition in 1867. And during the seven months it was on display there, more than 15 million spectators came just to see it. Uh, It was a really dramatic shift from most of the taxidermy that had come before it, and certainly different than almost anyone had seen before. Because prior to that, it was pretty common, even if you were setting up a scene of taxidermy, that it would kind of just be multiple mounts kind of in a line. But this is the first time that it really was sort of an action scene that depicted, like, an event happening.
0: After the Paris Exposition closed, the American Museum of Natural History bought Voreau's display, and it wasn't available for public viewing for some time. Once museum officials saw the piece in person, they thought it was a little too gauche to be part of their collection. So they uh, kept just kept it in storage for 30 years. Yeah, it basically
1: was in a warehouse in New York for all that time. Uh, eventually, though, in 1896, it was sold. Uh, it was sold to the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was fairly new at the time, for the tidy sum of $50. And it eventually became a prominent part of the collection there. There uh, is one story that it... They were going to be charged, I think it's $45 for them to actually transport it from its storage place to the museum. And I think that ruffled some feathers. Like, we just paid $50 for this. Now we got to pay another 50 just to get it here. Uh, <laughs> but it did eventually make its way to the collection. And while there have been rumors throughout the years that the man on the camel was an actual human... It is not, and that's one of those things that has been debated. There was a restoration point where it was worked on because there had been, you know, some degradation of the the specimen. Uh, but even so, I think most people and most museum curators that have been involved with it don't think it was ever an actual human. But because of the precedent of the Botswanan man, they there have always been some suspicions.
0: And as a side note, Barbary lions went extinct not long after the, the Veroux assembled this tableau. So if you're interested in seeing Arab Courier attacked by lions, it's still on display at the Carnegie Museum. The museum modeled a snow globe after it in 2009.
1: Yeah, they started like a, a, an interesting program where they were doing snow globes of some of their most interesting and famous pieces. And that was the one that kicked off the collection. So I have never seen one of the snow globes and how it actually turned out, but kind of fascinating.
0: I had this brief moment where I was like, I want one. I should start a snow globe collection. And then immediately, <laughs> where are you gonna put a snow globe collection? That's, seriously? The, that's the
1: problem always. Uh so both Edouard and Alexi died in eighteen sixty eight. And in 1870, so that was right after this big sort of triumph at the Paris Exposition of uh, Jules's piece. And in 1870, Jules Verreau left France as the Franco-Prussian War began. And he fled to England and he lived there for three years before he died. And when he had sold uh, the Arab Courier piece to the American Museum of Natural History, he sold with it to them, uh, the vast majority of the collection of Maison Vareau. And uh, there's been some speculation that he actually knew his health was already pretty dicey at that point, and he wanted to make sure the collection went somewhere, uh, and somewhere that was a museum that would understand what exactly they were getting, Uh, because it's been uh, discussed by some historians that he probably was already pretty sick from the ongoing exposure to chemicals used in taxidermy that he had basically been doing since he was a child. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was not in great health at that point.
0: Despite some claims that there was a child born out of wedlock when Jules was still very young, this was the end of the Vero brothers' lineage. Uh, And
1: while there are a number of species that bear the Vero name as a consequence of all the exploration and collecting that Jules and Edouard did and that Alexei assisted them with, there has also been some confusion about certain species based on some incorrect labeling that Jules is believed to have done to some of their collected pieces. And there's been some speculation that he may have purposely mislabeled some specimens uh, and the locations where they had been found to make them appear more exotic and therefore more valuable to museums and collectors. We don't know whether or not that was the case. But regardless of the cause of this labeling uh Sloppiness; those poorly cataloged items kind of did a bit of a disservice to science. There have been a couple of points of confusion over the years. Like, wait, this animal isn't really native to this place. Like, uh, and eventually they realize, like, no, this is just wrong.
0: Yeah. Well, and I want to point out that that poor or inaccurate label labeling is like not unique to these guys. No, not at all. <laughs> there are frequently stories that will come across our radar, which is like a museum found something really stunning in their collection that they didn't know they had. And yeah, uh, a lot of times people are ready to go, whoever made that mistake should be fired. And I'm kind of like, that guy made that mistake in about <laughs> 1912. So. Well,
1: and moreover, I mean, I uh, not that it excuses it, but when you're bringing back hundreds of thousands of things at a time, I could imagine it would be easy to lose track of something or, you know, even if you're attempting to be meticulous, you could just write down the wrong note in your book mm-hmm. as you go. So it's hard to keep track of. Uh And I promised we would return back to the taxidermied man, and we will. But first, we're going to have a word
0: from a sponsor, if that's cool with Tracy. I think we should have a break before we get to this. Yeah. <laughs> And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
3: Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an Adventure Ready RAV4. Let's go. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
1: So back to our story and to the part that I promised we would come back to you. You're probably wondering what happened to that taxidermied man from Botswana. Uh, well, in the 1880s, a Spanish taxidermist and veterinarian named Francesc Darter—it's probably pronounced differently, but usually it's uh, said that way when people are just discussing it—in uh, the sources I looked at, purchased the piece. Uh, and originally, he was going to—he put it on display at the um, Spanish Exposition, and then after he passed, it landed in the Darter Museum of Natural History, which is in
0: Spain. So this exhibit was uh, simply labeled El Negro, and it drew crowds for years. And not just a few years, years. The most shocking part of this story lies in the fact that this taxidermied human being was on display until the late 1990s. Yeah,
1: 1990s. So a very long time to be standing there. I think the part that really gets me is that This was not a person. Like, I could almost see a taxidermied human being on display if that had been their wish. Like, there are certainly people that have donated their bodies. And I get this was like a grave robbed situation. (laughs) And then this person just stayed on display forever, which is troubling. Uh, So in 1992, the museum was asked if they would consent to return the body to Botswana to be respectfully put to rest. Uh, at last, after being an African novelty for Europeans on display for more than 150 years. And initially, the museum refused.
0: If this were happening today, the internet would jump all over Uh it. So writing for the New York Times in 2000, Rachel Swarns stated the significance of the display piece. And here's a quote. To Africans, he was a symbol of racism lingering from the turn of the century when Blacks were paraded as freaks in the vaudeville shows and natural history museums of Europe and America. Yeah, he was certainly not the
1: only instance of this happening. Uh, But this really became uh, a case where people thought, like, this is correctable, like, we can at least make this a better situation. And so the Spanish government and the Organization of African Unity really worked in collaboration to try to convince the Darter Museum to just acquiesce to this request and finally let El Negro go home. Curators at the museum, it seemed like they almost, based on what I've read, I mean, I, I haven't seen interviews with these people or seen their firsthand accounts, but the way it reads, it sounds almost like they were just kind of bristly, that they were hurt that they had been called racist, And so... <laughs> Is that really tricky thing where they were like, no, we're really respectful about this display and we put it in context. Uh, You know, we talk about the history and the nature of exploration and specimen collection in the early 1800s. But eventually they kind of saw the error of that whole logic loop. And so they did give in to this request and the body was finally released.
0: A medical examination was performed on the preserved body, and it's believed that El Negro died of a lung infection at the age of about 27. An 1888 Darter Exhibition brochure claims that the Vareau brothers attended the man's funeral and then stole his body later that night, although there's no way to verify these claims.
1: Yeah, we don't know if that was written to be like a sensational museum card or if that's the actual case. It certainly does line up a little bit with Jules Verreau's letter to the Parisian uh museum head where he kind of says like we had to sneakily get this while his body was being guarded but we don't really have a solid yeah exact timeline of how that all played out.
0: Well, and the like in in my mind if that part is true, if that's really what they did, like that makes it even worse. Yes, exactly. Um because like there are lots of times in history where where people of one group have sort of felt like people of another group were not human beings uh-huh. and that doesn't make it okay i'm not saying that's okay or that that justifies anything but if you have just literally watched somebody have a funeral for their fallen kinsman and then you go and steal his body like there is no way that you're justifying to yourself that 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 was not a human being right just, <laughs> it
1: just becomes really reprehensible at that point
0: it, it's like it was reprehensible already and but now it's like 50 times more exactly. reprehensible than it already was exactly it's real. it's just yeah
1: Uh, so while it was never confirmed either whether or not the man had originally been from Botswana, he was returned there in 2000 to be reinterred, and he was buried in a state funeral in Gaborone after several days of visitation during which huge crowds of people turned out just to pay their respects to this unknown man.
0: At the funeral, Foreign Minister Lieutenant General Mampati Marafe said in his speech, today, 170 years later... We're gathered here not only to reinter the body in African soil where it likely belongs, but also to cleanse that act of desecration, restore the dignity of a common ancestor, to appease the spirits of Africa, and above all, to correct a wrong which has no statute of limitations. So I
1: thought it was going to be about cute lemurs. And then it was about something, and then it, it became really a moment, different, which is really sort of a more important story. It's not sort of; it really is a more important story to tell. It just wasn't what I thought I was getting into at the beginning, but uh, I'm glad that that came to light as I was researching because I remember thinking, "Oh, I got to do something on the Verro brothers. They're taxidermists. They discovered all these animals. Whoa, they did horrible things. Whoa!" <laughs>
0: well, and You and I have these conversations sometimes while you're researching at your desk and I'm researching at my desk, and we have these instant messages. Things where, like, one of us is expressing horror or delight or surprise or whatever. And I, like, I got this. I think it was I am for an I am from you where you were like, "Uh, This turned out really, really upsetting. I, w- I didn't think this was happening.
1: It is yeah, but again, like I said, that's an important story to tell, and uh, you know, I'm. I, we were certainly around when all of this was happening in the late nineties and two thousands. Mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't really I don't, remember seeing anything about it.
0: Well, I don't
1: remember which anything. Which could just be me. I wasn't tuned into it, but
0: yeah, and I think I, I probably, I don't know if I heard specifically about it or not. I like there has been enough in the last few decades. Uh, controversy and debate about repatriation of various artifacts mm-hmm. and things um, that it's like I, I don't know if among hearing about those stories I also heard about this one or not it definitely I don't remember specifically hearing about it
1: yeah it did not stick out in my mind uh, but that is
0: the scoop <laughs>
1: Let's go places.